tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. There's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Welcome, welcome. More obscurity, I hope. I don't know. If it isn't obscure, I certainly can make it sound obscure. So that said, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort. Through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go to the big book on the coffee table. <clears throat> the big book. Where's the big book sound? Oh, there's the big book sound. You know, it's like Pavlov's dog. And if you don't know what that is, look it up. Moving along. Uh, the voice in my head just said, you tried something new, it didn't work. All right, this is from Jeremiah, the 18th chapter. And let's look at Jeremiah just so you can place him in history. Jeremiah, the prophet, he was uh, the weeping prophet. He was called to the prophetic ministry when he was 19 years old. And uh, he was he was from a priestly family, one of these her, in the hereditary sacrifice, sacrificer priesthood of the Jewish people. <clears throat> And uh, that's that's a little bit important in this reading to help understand it. But uh, he was he didn't want to be a prophet. He said, "Oh Lord, you duped me, and I was duped." Uh, he, he he just was always complaining to the Lord. I yes, he's got the Book of Lamentations, which is actually we used to call it the Book of Baruch. Oh, uh, the, the the voice in my head. Is this live? No, this is live. Oh, this is live. Hello. I never know what's live and what's not. I have to take my pulse on occasion just to make sure. But the um, uh, Baruch was his secretary. And since we're already off on Baruch ben Neriah, uh, there were two bulle found. A bulla is a, a seal impression that uh, um, the... Uh, in order to, to seal something... You tie it up with string, and over the knot of the string, you would put a lump of melted clay or, or of, of soft clay or melted wax, and you would impress your seal ring in it. It's kind of like a credit card impression, the way we used to in the old days. And not one, but two bulle seals were, were found in the ruins of Jerusalem in 1975, the first one, and it had 
Baruch's name, Baruch ben Neriah. And uh, it seems to have been the real thing. And then a second one was found in 1996. And so we, very interesting, the second one, there was actually a fingerprint. He'd gotten his finger on, on this clay seal. And uh, it's very possible we have the, the fingerprint of one of the uh, biblical authors. And this, this fellow Baruch was his secretary. And there's uh, the book of Baruch we used to call it, but it's generally incorporating the book of Jeremiah and their lamentations. Uh, the interesting thing about this uh, to me is if I can find my mouse again uh, so I can pull this up, I'll find it. Uh, there, there, I found it. I'm getting better at finding, finding my cursor. <laughs> Moving along, let's go to uh, the blurb on Jeremiah here. Uh, <clears throat> he was born, we believe, 650 years before Christ, and he died 570 years before Christ. So he was prophesying for many years before the, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and he was... Uh, Utterly ignored, and that's what today's reading is about. Let's go to the reading. The people of Judah and the citizens, this is Jeremiah, the 18th chapter, the 18th verse and following. The people of Judah, the citizens of Jerusalem, said, Come, let us contrive a plot against Jeremiah. It will not mean the loss of instruction from the priests uh, or, or messages from the prophets. So we think of the prophets as, well, there were a few of them, you know, not that many. There were lots of prophets. People made their living as prophets. It was, it was, uh, they had schools of the prophets. I don't think we have time to go into that today. We read, we read uh, in the first book of Samuel, is Saul among the prophets? Uh, that the, these fellows would, would prophesy. And by that, we don't mean that they would, <clears throat> that they would uh, um, uh, go around saying, thus says the Lord, sell low, buy high. No, buy, buy low, sell high, whichever way. I wouldn't make much of a profit. I'd be very non-profit that way. But uh, what they would do, the, the, the early word, I, I think I've shared this with you before, but I'll do it again. The early word for a prophet was a seer, one who saw. And I love Roy Shulman's book, A Honey from the Rock. It's about his conversion story. He... he uh, is Jewish and accepted Christ and came into the Catholic Church. Uh, wonderful book, that and Salvation from the Jews. Uh, he really is quite a, a, a very good author. Well, Roy Shulman talks about his conversion and the veil between this world and the unseen world became very thin for him one day and it much involved the Blessed Mother. But to me, that was an explanation of what of the Old Testament sense of prophecy and the sense of prophecy that we still have, that the veil between this world and what I like to call the real world, the world of, of uh, the dimension of, of spiritual things, it became very thin. And you could see things. Um, uh, any prophet I've known, uh, and I've known some prophets, you know, the charismatic rules full of them, but um, <clears throat> some are very genuine and some think they're very genuine. Um, but, for instance, I know a, a, a woman, a dear friend, who she'll, she'll be praying for you, and she'll call you and say, Father Rich, I was praying for you today, and I, I had a vision. And you think, oh, dear Lord, what have I done now that you're, 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 you're telling prophets to call me? But 
they see things, and that's these schools of prophets would see things, and they would they would try to interpret what they saw in application to the situation in which they found themselves. And Jeremiah, he was the real thing. He could see that Jerusalem was about to be destroyed because of the unfaithfulness of of its citizens to the Lord. And all the other prophets said, you're nuts. It's going to go fine. Quit demoralizing people. And they decided, we got to get rid of him. Um, it's not going to stop the words from the prophets. There's so many prophets. What's one prophet? And they, they at one point, threw him in a, a, a cistern that didn't hold water, was full of mud, and left him there to die, and he was rescued. But what he said came to pass. Jerusalem was destroyed, and its population was exiled. So... Um, I say that because I think we need to remember that, that uh, as the readings have been saying recently, that, that um, you, can't, you can't resist God uh, if you don't bring God into the political, social, and personal equation. You're inviting disaster. He goes on to say, heed me, Lord, listen to, and listen to what my adversaries say. Must good be repaid with evil? Uh, remember that I stood before you to speak in their behalf. In the priestly ministry, he was from a priestly family. He stood before the Lord to speak on behalf of the people of Israel, and all they wanted to do was kill him. So that's just kind of a brief over, overview. Let's go, however, to Matthew, which is uh, the gospel today. Matthew 20, verse 17 and following. Jesus took the 12 disciples. You know, they're not the 12 apostles. Uh, the, the, we're so used to the 12 apostles, and I've told you this before, you can look it up. There were 72 apostles. There are only 12 of the 12. Jesus appointed a leadership group in the early church. It was called the 12. In fact, as in, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, uh, St. Paul talks about the 12 uh, when there were only 11 of them. Uh, he still uses the phrase the 12. Uh, Judas had killed himself. So you'll see repeated frequently in the scriptures, the 12, the 12, the 12, here are the 12 disciples. The phrase 12 apostles, I think, occurs only about four or five times in the New Testament, so, but we're so used to the 12 apostles. Remember, all of the 12 were apostles, not all apostles were members of the 12. The word apostle just means missionary. There are lots of missionaries de delegated by Christ of whom Paul was one. There were only 12 of the 12, and at one point there were only 11. So he calls the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and he tells them the truth. They're going to kill me. Oh, no, that can't be. Remember when he says that to Peter, um, Peter says, uh, Lord, let it not be so. And, and, and just having appointed him the first pope, saying, you know, I give you the keys of the kingdom, he then says, get behind me, Satan. Um, you think like men, not like God. So they, they just couldn't hear it. They couldn't, just like they couldn't hear Jeremiah, they couldn't hear Jesus when he said, they're going to kill me. So immediately following this, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. Now, Zebedee was a prosperous man. He didn't have a fishing boat. He had a number of boats and he had hired men. And I, I read somewhere or heard somewhere, and I can't footnote it, but that he was uh, a purveyor of kosher fish to the high priest's house in Jerusalem. That would have been like purveyor to the queen sort of thing, or I suppose now the king. But uh, um, 
he was a man of substance. And his wife thought, well, she wanted to get the get first dibs in uh, and make sure that uh, Jesus would take care of her boys when he was the king of Israel. And she says, uh, at one, one of the versions, I think the version in Mark, she says, I want you to do whatever I ask for. Uh, um, so the mother of the sons of Zebedee approached Jesus, did him homage, and he said, well, what do you wish? She answered, command that these two sons of mine sit one at your right hand, the other at your left in your kingdom. And he says, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they said, we can. Well, you, you will drink it. But as to sitting at my right and my left, it's not mine to give. It's for those who, for whom it's been prepared by my father. Don't you wonder who those were? Was it, was it Mary and Joseph? Was it Saints Peter and Paul? Was it Moses and Elijah? Who was going to sit on the thrones on either side of Jesus? Well, think about it. Jesus' throne was a cross. His crown was a crown of thorns. We read in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus is talking about glory, he's talking about the crucifixion. Now has the hour come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. Jesus, and when Judas goes out, he essentially says the same thing. Now has the hour come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When Jesus is talking about his glory, especially in the Gospel of John, he's talking about the cross, because that's where he manifested who he really was. Well, he, he said to the, this, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, he says, you don't know what you're asking for. Who, <laughs> if his throne was a cross, the thrones on either side of him were reserved for two thieves. When Jesus came into his glory, there were two thieves enthroned on either side of him, one who repented, one who didn't. Think about it. Two thieves, not our blessed mother and St. Joseph, not Moses and Elijah, not Peter and Paul, two sinners. And a throne is reserved for you, sinner. And a throne is reserved for this sinner who's talking to you. And I can receive it or I can reject it. I am not worthy of a throne near Christ, but he still offers me one. You're not worthy of a throne near Christ, yet he offers you one. This is, to me, utterly astonishing uh, that, that uh, uh, oh, good grief. I, I turned the ringer off. Good grief. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Yeah, there, there, there we go. Uh, nip it in the bud. Nip it in the bud. That's what we're going to do. Hold on. Oi. Moving along here. Um, good grief. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I turned the ringer off. I really did. You saw me do it, didn't you? I guess I just don't know how phones work. That's the problem. All right. Moving along. Uh, if it rings again, I'll just break it on the edge of the desk here. Uh, where was I? Oh, yes, uh, something about, about uh, the others being jealous of him. If they had understood what Jesus was talking about, they would have said, good, James and John, you take the thrones. But they were, they were angry about, about uh, these people trying to get, get in tight with Jesus uh, before they could. Uh, they didn't understand what authority is in the kingdom. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. The great ones make their authority felt over them. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your slave. You know, we, 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 we adorn leadership in the church, even in the church with this sort of, this sort of aristocracy. When 
the people who, you know, what, what did Pope Gregory the, the Great call himself? The servant of the servants of God? That, that we, we pay lip service to that in the church, but we often don't really believe it. We still think that, that uh, it's all about uh, uh, power and authority, especially in, in the questions today facing uh, who should be ordained and who shouldn't and who should go to communion and who shouldn't. We still think of it the way the apostles thought of the kingdom as this kind of worldly authority, worldly privilege and worldly rights, whereas the mother of the sons of Zebedee was volunteering her sons for crucifixion. And the other disciples, jealous of the sons of Zebedee, were jealous of the fact that they were going to be tortured to death. And it's very interesting. All of the disciples, according to the tradition, all of the disciples died violent deaths except for John. He was at the foot of the cross. He experienced the crucifixion firsthand. The others still had to go through the crucifixion. The throne of glory revealed in the, in, in the, in the future, in the world to come, appears in this world as a cross. And we embrace it. We don't look for suffering. We don't look for the cross. But when it comes to us, we embrace it. I think this is a very important idea that... that uh, you can't get to glory except through the cross. All right, enough said. We'll take a break. We'll come back uh, with some letters, and we'll open the phones at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. Battling addictions? Our sponsor, St. Gregory Recovery Center, can help you or a loved one live a substance-free life. Information at relevantradio.com slash Gregory. That's relevantradio.com slash Gregory. Lord, I'm traveling on for Jesus night and day, night and day. Let me tell you I'm traveling on for Jesus night and day. On your mind, sure a good friend's hard to find. Lord, telling you everybody will be your friend. Tell you my mama now she's dying. This is an old, a song by the McGarrigals, um, who are from Canada and uh, old hippie. Hippie music, my kind of music. It's a great old song. Don't mind, don't mind, don't mind what the people say. Oh, and don't take everybody to be your friend. <laughs> Sage advice. You do a lot of traveling on for Jesus at this I, part of at this, this point in, in, your, my life, in your life. I'm in the car a lot, and Father Rocky does more. So that should be Father Rocky's theme song. All right, moving along. Let us go now to letters. This is a letter thanking me for my comments about silence before the Mass. Uh, thank you, Father Simon. This is from Patricia. Uh, thank you, Father Simon, for addressing the fact that people converse before Mass instead of praying and preparing. <clears throat> this used to gripe my mother so badly. She would say that people who do this are acting as if they are in an auditorium waiting for the program to begin. Mass is 
mom is deceased, but <laughs> she was so right. That's exactly right, Patricia. It's like the show's about to start. I think I, I might have told you all about uh, this grand liturgy. Uh, I was in a parish that was half Vietnamese, and they really liked the big mass. <clears throat> and they were preparing for a grand, grand liturgy. And a young man very enthusiastically ran up with a cord and said, Father, should I put this up on the stage? And I was about to go into the tirade. It's not a stage. It's an altar. It's a and I said, yeah, put it up on the stage because it was a stage. You know, it was a stage. It wasn't an altar anymore. So, you know, so often I've been to liturgy. I'll never forget once when a, a music director, there was a bishop being installed or, or something, or, you know, hatched or buried or installed or one of those things that happens to bishops. And there were two, count them, two choirs, one in front and one up in the choir loft. And the choir director ran up to me and, and said, uh, how did you like the music? And I so wanted to say to him, oh, I liked it very much. I hope God did too. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I don't know how to get that genie back in the bottle. But I'm about to say something might get uh, help get another genie back in the bottle. And I can't quite find the letter. Where'd it go? That's the theme from Genie. I, I Dream of Genie. Let's see here. I think this is... Um, Ah, here it is. This is from Richard in uh, Chicago. Uh, they once asked Padre Pio what was the problem with clapping at Mass, and he answered, in Calvary, there were there were those applauding Christ's death, soldiers and demons, and I suppose you can include the high priests. Uh, did you hear what I just said? Padre Pio said that the only people applauding at Mass were the soldiers and the demons, to which I added, and some of the high priests. If you mass is the unbloody representation of Calvary, there are rare moments when it is appropriate to applaud something. Uh, uh, I'd almost bend in the sermon, and if there's a special announcement of a special event in people's lives at the end in the Novus Ordo, in the old mass, you would never applaud under any circumstances. But this sort of let's applaud the choir and the, and 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 it was a wonderful show. Uh, don't do that. The only people applauding at Calvary were the soldiers and the demons. Which one are you? Okay, moving along. That doesn't say it. Nothing will. All right, let me let me find a letter here. Okay, let me down here. I got a bunch. <clears throat> Did I do this one already? Oh, someone just uh, talking about the explanation of the Our Father uh, the other day. And I, I wanted to mention something about, you know, forgive us as we forgive. You know, I remember talking to Rabbi Lefkowitz about, about radical forgiveness. And this is something that is, I think, unique to Christianity, that, that I remember talking to the rabbi, and the way he looked at justice, it excluded the forgiveness of certain crimes. And, you know, I... I, maybe you've heard me say it, that the most irritating doctrine of uh, the Christian faith is the absolute nature of forgiveness. That's not true. It's wonderful that God forgives the sinners. No, no, it's wonderful that God forgives all my sins, not that he forgives all of your sins. Think of something that you find, you know, hangings to good for him. I want to read something. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, all right, where'd it go? Where'd it go? I, I pulled it up. Ah. This is, there is a book out that I, I cannot wait to read about Corrie ten Boom. Uh, Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch 
woman who was unlucky in love and uh, dedicated herself uh, to the care of her older relatives because she wasn't going to marry after after her heart was broken in youth. Uh, her great claim to distinction was that she was the first certified woman clock repair person in Holland before the Second World War. Well, she helped her brother, a Dutch Reformed minister, smuggle Jews out of Nazi Germany. And uh, when the Germans took over Holland, they, they said, well, it was the right thing to do then. It's still the right thing to do. So they continued to smuggle Jews out of Holland until they were uh, caught. And she and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp, which was uh, a horrible, a horrible concentration camp. Um, and her sister Betsy died there. But her sister Betsy kept telling her there's going to be a lot of work to do when this war is over, and the people are going to most need it are the Germans. And we got to, we got to, you know, she, and Corey didn't want to go anywhere. Once she she was uh, released from the concentration camp because of a clerical error after her sister had died, and uh, she made it back to Holland, and she swore she was never going to cross the border into Germany again. Well... God had other plans. And this, I'm reading from the review of this new book, The Watchmaker's Daughter. In early 1947, Corey spoke at a church in Munich, the town where Adolf Hitler had begun his political career with the ill-fated Birhal Putsch. When she finished, a man worked his way through the crowd to speak with her, balding and heavy set. He wore an overcoat and carried a brown felt hat. As he stepped closer, though, Corey instead saw a blue uniform, a cap with skull and crossbones, and a swinging leather riding crop. Her stomach churned. It was him, all right. The first SS guard she had seen in the Ravensbrück shower room. The undressing and nakedness, the pile of clothes, the leering, mocking men, Betsy's ashen face. Of all the sadistic camp guards, he was one of the most cruel. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, the man said, to think that, as you say, he has washed away my sins. He held out his hand, but Corey did not reciprocate. How could she touch this vermin? You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he continued. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. He extended his hand again. Fräulein, will you forgive me? Corey wrestled with her bitterness. This man represented the worst of the place that had taken her sister Betsy's life. Forgiveness seemed impossible. At the same time, though, she remembered Jesus' admonition. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. She'd preached the importance of forgiveness the last 12 months. And she'd seen firsthand at Blumendell and Darmstadt the practical impact. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies resumed their lives, while those who could not remain who could not, remained emotional invalids. Corey tried to smile, but she, <clears throat> but she felt not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. Quickly, she said a silent prayer, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. Mechanically, she lifted her arm. As, as she gripped the man's hand, something remarkable happened. A current of energy passed between them, and a healing warmth flooded her body. More than forgiveness, Corey suddenly felt a genuine love for this man, her eyes filled with tears. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart.
For several moments, she held his hand. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This lesson she would not soon forget. One often cannot forgive without the power and grace of God. I'm always telling you that when you can't forgive, what you need to do is to say, Lord, I can't forgive, but I give you my permission to forgive them. She forgave the man who essentially killed her sister, her dearest friend. Uh, unless, did you hear the reading in, the, in that teaching about the Our Father? If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, neither will God forgive you. What goes out of you comes back to you. The doctrine of absolute forgiveness, which is at the heart of the Christian faith, at the heart of the cross, is repugnant to people who do not know what God is like. So we can be very pious about the Our Father and say, oh yes, I forgive people. Would you forgive someone who killed your nearest and dearest? I don't know that I would. Certainly I wouldn't without the grace of God. So uh, thank you. This is from Valerie in Fort Myers. Um, um, that idea of, of forgiveness, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who, who sin against us, and then we go up and take communion, not meaning a word of it. Ours is not an easy religion, friends, but it is the right one, I believe. Let's see here. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. Oh, this is just uh, from from a fellow named named Sean. It's uh, in uh, listen on the internet, who who's got a great devotion to Saint Benedict Labre. I had a question last week about fools. Uh, do we have do we have the same category as the Eastern Church, the holy fools? I don't know that we have the category, but we have a lot of holy fools. And Saint Benedict Labre was was a beggar who who was in fact a saint, and uh, um, very interesting. Uh, you might want to look him up. Uh, St. Benedict Labre, L-A-B-R-E. I believe that's how the last name is spelled. How are we doing time-wise? Well, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with a word of the day. Oh, the, the waltz. That's a schönes Tanz. Oh, 888-914-914. Do call in and try to stump the Reverend Know-It-All. A thing much easier done than you'd think. 888-914-9149. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for Independent Thinkers at RelevantRadio.com forward slash UDallas. Glory, glory, hallelujah, Is this lead better? Mississippi John. Oh, Mississippi John Hurt. Yes, he does a lovely version of C.C. Ryder. Mississippi John. Oh, you know, my producer knows how to touch my old, to depress my old hippie buttons there. Well, it's amazing. All right, let's go to the word of the day. The word of the day, well, we're going to do two because, well, I saw something shiny. Uh, just so the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we think of ransom, we think of kidnapping, but that's not what the word really means. Uh, 
Uh, it, it, it implies that, but kidnapping was a much more honorable profession in the ancient world than it is now. Uh, now you, you kidnap someone expressly in order to get a ransom. But back in the old days, you, you, a, a robber or, or, or a pirate would, would capture people and sell them as slaves. That's why they captured people. And those captured in war were sold as slaves. And the ancient Romans thought that was just fine because if you allowed yourself to be captured and did not fight to the death, it meant you had the nature of a slave. It was your natural condition. So you got to be a slave, and they thought you were supposed to be a slave. Um, it was pretty, pretty backwards thinking. The word in the text, he gave his life as a ransom for many, is litron. And a litron was the ransom of a slave. It was money paid to free a slave. That's interesting. It's a little different than our concept of ransom. And that's what this is about. We are enslaved by sin, and Christ gave himself as a ransom for, for our slavery to free us from sin. And uh, this is called substitution, that he substituted himself as, as being the victim of death and sin instead of us. And, but the second word I want to talk about is the, for many— it's the same exact Greek word as we use in the in the consecration. The, the, the chalice of my blood, the blood which we poured out for you and for many. People got all upset when they went back to the, the word that was closer to the biblical text uh, that his blood was poured out for many. Well, it wasn't poured out for everybody. You got to understand what the word many meant. You had government by the one, monarchy, government by the few, aristocracy. That is, by, by government by the upper class, aristocracy, or government by the few, oligarchy. And then you had government by the people, democracy. Uh, you had the one, the few, and the many. And the many were the unimportant people, the earth people, the unwashed mob. Uh, and so Jesus, when he says, my blood is poured out for many, his blood is poured out for the unimportant. And as long as you think you're important, well, then you don't need Christ. Uh, the, the common man, in a sense, was the many. So he gave himself as a ransom for the unimportant people. His blood was poured out, using the same exact word in the consecration, for the unimportant people. There's a reason, he said, for many. Jesus said it. That's why we have it in the consecration. But it's not very inclusive. It's much. It, no, it's not. If you think you're all that in a sight of fries, well, then you don't need the redemption that Christ offers uh, from Calvary. All right. Let us move on now to phone calls. Hello. You talk. I'll listen. <laughs> well, you know that's not going to happen. Let's go to Greg from Baltimore. What can I do for you, Greg? Uh, yeah, Father, I was wondering what the current value would be for the 30 pieces of silver for which Christ was betrayed. Well, again, it depends on which piece of silver. Uh, if you're talking about the Athenian tetradrachma, that was a big hunk of silver. It would have been about oh, around $500. If you're talking about a shekel from the city of Tyre, uh, or Antioch, it would have been about $350. I once read that it was equivalent to $3,000, but probably more accurately, uh, you know, uh, the weight of silver that was in those coins, according to today's value, would have been between $350 and $450. That sounds like not much, but it's almost impossible 
to really correlate things uh, between today's uh, monetary units and yesterday's monetary mm-hmm. units. It's very hard to do. But strictly speaking, it would have uh, uh, been worth about $350 or $400, but it probably had okay. a little bit more purchasing power. But it wasn't that much. It was considered the price of a slave. It was the, the, the litron, on the ransom of a slave. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it probably was, the purchasing part of it was was probably fairly significant. Does that answer your question? It surely does. Thank you very kindly. All right, Greg. God bless. Let's Bye-bye. go. Let, thank you. Let's go to Andrea from Houston. Andrea, are you with us? Yes. Good. Hi, Father. Good. What can um, I do for you? Where can I find information on what Lent is and why we practice it for forty days? Oh. And also, when did we? When and why did Catholics start observing Lent? Oh, they did that very early on. Uh, the, 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 the period of preparation for, for uh, they, they fasted to, to uh, uh, the, the, where was it? Oh, the voice major said USCCB has a good explanation. Come on, it's, right, it's right on their website. Uh, the homepage, usccb.org, has a little what is Lent. Oh, well, let's let's look at what the is. what the bishop's organization says. If I can if I can find my little cursor, there it is. Okay, Aha. a prodigious task. I found say? it. I found it. Let's go to the USCCB site, and I will I will quote them. How's that sound? All right. Where's the home page? I'm not getting it. Let's see here. Oh, I'm not gonna find it. I just ah. Himmel, that's German for golly. Well, it's in there. Look it up, USCCB site. But Lent, Lent is the idea of 40 days. There was, from very early on, they, they prepared for religious services by fasting. And uh, it came to be that the, the period before the holy days was extended to 40 because Jesus fasted 40 days in the desert. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 days, a very significant biblical number. And, well, it's longer than 40 days. Well, those 40 days don't count the Sundays, and they don't count the actual days of the Triduum. So depending on how you reckon it, it is 40 days of fasting. Uh, so does that answer your question? Um, yeah. Is, is, um, so the reason we practice it is because Jesus fasted for 40 days in the desert? That's the, That's the idea, that we imitate his fasting in the desert. Um, so... That's essentially it. You know, it, it, it's a very ancient custom. Uh, the origin of it is, is uh, you know, fasting is very biblical. Um, uh, the, there's something called the Apostolic Constitution uh, um, that, that was written. Oh, gosh, it was probably written, oh, around 400. Parts of it may go back to much earlier. And they talk about the... the uh, uh, limiting what you eat in preparation for uh, uh, in preparation for Easter, just bread, vegetables, salt, and water. They didn't even eat oil. Flesh and wine were forbidden, and uh, uh, that goes that goes way back. So it, it was codified into forty days. I don't know where it. Uh, it, it by three thirty nine, uh, it was a forty day fast. Uh, so that's that's really early. Three three thirty nine A.D. Uh, Saint Athanasius talked about the forty day fast. So it really does go back to the early church. Does that help? 
Yes, that does. Thank you. All right. God bless, and thanks for calling in, Andrea. All right, let's go Thank to you, God. God bless. Let's go to Celeste from Denver. What what can I do for you, Celeste? Father, I called last week about um, going to an SSDX yes, yes. wedding, and I just wanted to tell you and everybody who might be interested. I checked with the judicial vicar Ooh. diocese. I, well, actually, I che- I wrote a, a, a note to the diocese, and it was forwarded to the judicial vicar, mm-hmm. and I got the response yesterday, and it says that. Um, the bishop at that diocese has granted delegation to one of the SSPX exactly. priests for the wedding, so the marriage will indeed be valid, and I may legitimately attend the wedding with a clear conscience. That's wonderful. And, you know, it's interesting that he said the bishop has delegated. That's the key here, that the bishop is the guardian of the sacraments in his diocese, and he's obliged to follow a universal church law in the sacraments, but there are specific things that are, are really in, in the bishop's pastoral control. And one of them is to whom he delegates faculties. And in some dioceses, there's a general delegation for the Society of Pius X because then somebody wrote me a letter, are they in the church or not in the church? Yeah, they're in the church, but the relationship to the, to the, to the, uh, to the hierarchy is, is, is in a state of flux and confusion. That's the best we can do these days. Uh, you know, God doesn't want us to kick people out of the church, but we need to have clear guidelines. So we're working on this with the society. Uh, they're very sincere in, in, their, in, their, uh, in their love for Christ. So there are bishops who are given general faculties in their diocese, and then bishops who give specific faculties. So um, Thanks. That that's a very helpful letter. It really is because it really kind of defines the situation. So good, good. I hope that was essentially what I told you. So, yeah, you said I could go. I just wanted to get the good. Oh, much better. The, the, the yes, the, the judicial trust the judicial vicar. It was my opinion that you would have been in good faith and and uh, and assuming that that the priest yes. had done his due diligence. Yes. And he did. Well, I actually, I actually, simultaneously that morning, I had emailed the diocese and I called you that afternoon. So I hadn't heard back from the diocese yet. So I thought I'd check with you because I don't <laughs> well, hear go. back from the diocese. Of course, you check with the Reverend Know It All first. No, oh, dear. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I wasn't too far afield in my answer. You know, these are these are difficult times, and and uh, you know, I think that that the more we can recognize in common, the better. In, in every in every situation in the church. But then there comes a point of integrity, of honesty, where, no, this just isn't so. But in this case, it was exactly, exactly right. And I'm so glad you, you, you reached out to your diocese. There you go. So God bless you, Celeste, and thanks for your help. All right? Okay, thank okay. you. I always tell Bye-bye. you, we got smart listeners at Relevant Radio. Let's go to Sean. Sean from San Francisco. What can I do for you? Hello. I would like to know, my daughter is dating a fine young Lutheran gentleman, gentleman, and he is as Lutheran as we are Catholic. Yes. And I can't find anything, anything that's not great about him. I told him the only thing he has to do is gain everything. (laughs) He has nothing to lose. Yeah. But but he said he does not believe in transubstantiation. He believes in consubstantiation. Yes. I want to know the difference and why do they believe that? Well, consubstantiation is 
To me, it is a real reflection of Luther being the very first German in history. Germany was not a country, it really wasn't a country until like 1860-something. It was a collection of small countries. It really is kind of a culture and became kind of a federation. And um, <laughs> the I remember going up to some, I was in Lourdes just after the great military pilgrimage was over, and I went up to some soldiers who were clearly German, and I said, where are you from? And and uh, uh, they said, we're from Bavaria, which is the southernmost state of, of Germany. And uh, I said, uh, I said, oh, Bavarians aren't real Germans. And you could see, I, I think one or two of them actually was going for his gun. And I said, yeah, they're not real Germans. They're too nice. <laughs> they roared laughing because my people are Hessian and we are real Germans. Uh, but... They're very different culturally, different parts of Germany. Uh, the South tends to be Catholic. The North tends to be uh, either Reformed Protestant, Calvinist, or, um, or Lutheran. But in a sense, Luther was, uh, was really kind of the first German, and he was very, very skeptical of things. And uh, to his eyes, well, it's still bread and wine. It's clear. So he came up with the idea that, that the body and blood of Christ is present along with bread and wine. And we Catholics say... No, no, it's not consubstantiation, it's transubstantiation. In other words, trans means it has changed, it has made a transition, that there is no bread or wine there, that it is purely the flesh and blood of Christ in the form or in the appearance of bread and wine. Well, that's crazy. It's clearly bread and wine. It looks like bread, tastes like bread, crumbles like bread. It's bread. Why would you think it wasn't? This is a very important idea. Uh, the, the, uh, um, we, we like to say, no, uh, Jesus did not say this contains my body and my blood or represents my body. Or this is my body and my blood. Luther was trying to reconcile his very Catholic beliefs, uh, his very traditional beliefs, with, with what he saw as patently true. When we say believe, what we mean is we are of the opinion, I believe it will rain tomorrow. I'm of the opinion it will rain tomorrow. That's not what the word believe means. I tell you this a lot. The word believe in Greek means to trust. I don't think that that's the body and blood of Christ. I trust that it is. Jesus said it is, and I can trust him. But it's obvious that, you know, do you trust Jesus? Of course I trust Jesus. Did he say this contains my body and blood or this represents my body and blood? No, he said this is my body and blood. Do you trust him? Well, of course I trust him, but I don't think he was telling the truth about this. You can't have it both ways. We trust that that is the body and blood of Christ because Jesus said it. So the transubstantiation is there is no longer bread and wine there. Consubstantiation says that, yes, there is still bread and wine there, but Jesus is present along with bread and wine. Do you under, does that explain the difference? They believe it's with. And we believe, and we it believe is. it's with. No, we don't believe it's with. It we is. believe it is. They believe it's with. And the okay. reason we believe and, it is is because yeah. Jesus said so, and we trust him. Okay. that help? Yes. Good. Yes, yes. Yes. I'm taking notes. Thank you. Good. Yes, as uh, fundamentalists will always say, Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. <laughs> we can say that about the Eucharist. There you go. Well, thanks for calling in. God bless you. 
Let's. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's go to Bill from the Midwest. Just have a, a, a minute or two left. What can I do for you, Bill? Hello. Hello, yes. I've been listening to you for a while, and you play a lot of music. That, I do. Yeah. Have you, when in your younger days, did you ever frequent the, I don't know if you went to bars or not back then, but did you ever go to the Earl of Old Town or somebody else's troubles? I never went to, I think I went to the Earl. That was, my brother used to go to the Earl all the time, but I never went to someone else's troubles. Uh, Biddy Mulligan's I went to, and... Uh, 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 John Barleycorn and oh. uh, you remember all these places. This was long ago and my far uncle, away. Maybe, maybe someday, maybe you met my uncle. My uncle was a bartender back then. Oh, well, of course, I never went near the bar. Of course, I just sat there listening to the music. Right, right. Did you ever? <laughs> yeah, but did you? I don't know. Yeah. Oh. Long ago and far away. So, uh, oh yeah, that that. Uh, uh, Chicago and the folk music scene. Oh, yeah. Am I that old, really? I guess I am. Stay tuned. Drew is much younger. <laughs> Oi. Yeah.